The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we do, or we have already, and we do again confess that our view of your saving work through Jesus is too small. And so our prayer, Father, this morning as we've already prayed, we pray again, is that you would enlarge our understanding of your salvation. Father, we pray that you'd grant us the ability to daily live in light of the gospel of grace and the power of our total salvation through Christ. Father, it goes this way. Think through my mind. 
speak through my vocal cords, all of you, none of me. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Rob Spikestra. I'm 54. So as not to disclose my wife's age on this stage, let me just say I married a woman much younger than myself. She's 39. We have four children, three, uh, three boys out of college and a daughter. I'm the headmaster at Morning Star Academy, proudly a classical Christian pre-K through 12th grade school. Headmaster is a title for being kind of a superintendent of a district of only one school. Now, I tell you this about me because um, I'm at a, in a time of life where you never think that you really are going to be or can't imagine being there when you're in your 20s or your 30s, and, and that is that I have more years behind me now than I have in front of me. And at a time of life where when you're in your 20s or 30s, you wonder, what's Great battles will I be involved in in my 50s? Well, for the most part, it looks like this. You can typically find me getting uh, up in the morning around 5 a.m., coffee in hand, sitting in a chair with my Bible, I've been reading through the Bible using the Bible Project schedule and uh, Bible Project YouTube videos. And, and I, I read, I'll read a portion of scripture. So right now I'm in the book of Leviticus. And then I finish my reading with a psalm. And many times I'm inspired uh, to make maybe a small change in my life. And like I'll say to myself, you know, tonight, before we go to bed, Tamara and I, we're, we're going to spend 30 minutes in prayer over all our family, friend, and church concerns. I then end my time for about 15 to 20 minutes in prayer. This is going to be a great day. I have Christ. I get out of my chair. I make oatmeal. Get ready. Turn on my daily news podcast, The World and Everything in It, to get the latest news. I, by the way, I turn to that highly recommended podcast uh, because it is both very professionally well-written, but it also is, uh, it recognizes the sovereignty of God, and it gives me a little hope that things are not out of control. But even then, when I learn about late-term abortion, collapse of the Venezuelan economy, Nations taking sides on which side they're going to defend. Immigrants at the border. Politicians entrenching themselves and a lot of name calling. It becomes a little heavier. But it's okay. This is going to be a good day. God's in control. I, I go to work. Hopefully on time unless the weather causes another two hour delay. Morning devotions with faculty, where we sing a hymn, read scripture, pray for one another. A reminder of the fallen world of sickness or family difficulties. The bell rings, school begins. Open the emails. A lot of cells. Delete, delete, delete. A complaint. Why don't you? Why can't you? I'm pulling my kid if you won't. That's okay. They, they have some good points. I should have anticipated that. Man, I'm not so good at this job. Maybe I shouldn't be here. I'm just a loser. No, 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 no. My identity is in Christ. Today is going to be okay. More putting out fires. Tempted to lash out. Say an unkind word, 
who think a devilish thought. More realizing I should have done better, anticipated more, the school day ends. Finally, I have a quiet hour to get some work done. Knock, knock, knock. Another issue. An hour later, this day sucks. <laughs> Why did I ever take this job? Oh, I don't want to go run. I'm going to go home. Go home. Debrief the day with my wife. I'm just putting out fires. Eat dinner. If I have a little bit of energy, sort and deal with mails, emails, bills. I say to Tamara, let's watch an episode or two of Fraser on Amazon Prime. A little wine, maybe some cheese. An hour later, drop into bed. I don't care anymore. The great battle at 54 is the battle with sin. It's a fight of faith. It's a struggle for joy in Christ. Life is war. This morning's passage is a gift of God for the great battle daily, the great daily battles of life. If, if we're going to be individuals who overcome, who persevere through temptation, who resist compromise to the culture around us, who fight the good fight of faith, we must fix our eyes on God's final rescues. Fixed upon God's final rescues rescues, provides the joy sufficient to overcome. Fixed upon God's final rescues provides the joy sufficient to overcome. Now, why do I use the word overcome? I could use the word also, I could also use the word conquer. So remember all the way back to chapter one, verse three, those who are blessed. It says there, blessed is the one who reads aloud the works of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. So blessed, almost happy are those who apply what is written in Revelation. When we're in times of personal suffering and difficulties and crisis, we are always in danger of functionally sidelining the Bible. So that committed believers in the word of God who, who do not deny their faith in the truthfulness of God many times will functionally sideline the word of God because they think that what is going on in their lives is not dynamically shaped and directed by the overarching story of the Bible. So there's an implicit warning in this blessing. Blessed are those who read aloud the word of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Warning. Don't read this book like a really fascinating science fiction story with some strange creatures in a fictional world. Or in the positive, read this book to apply it. For those who apply it will be happy. So this should give us some confidence as we come to chapter 19. That there is some application that God has for every one of us here, here today. So I say, fix your eyes upon God's final rescues. You do that, it will provide the joy sufficient to Overcome, and that overcome is very particular to everyone here. But why overcome or conquer? 
Well, remember when John receives this revelation, this is one letter to be passed among seven churches, churches that are going, to go, or that are going through various trials and temptations. Remember that, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Churches that are in various degrees of spiritual health, some strong who are facing fierce uh, persecution, others just on life support, barely alive due to their compromise to the culture around them. But in each particular message, remember that, it's for all the churches, and yet there were particular messages there in ch- chapters 2 and 3 to each of the churches. To each of them is given uh, to the churches, or we read these words, every one of them, to the one who conquers, or your version may say, to the one who overcomes. See, God's God is calling his people to be conquerors or overcomers. So this passage, Revelation 19, is given to the church that we might fix our eyes upon God's final rescues in order that we might have joy sufficient to overcome. Whatever God is calling you to overcome today. Let's look at three rescues. First, number one, God rescues, God's rescue from the sinful corruption of the world. God's rescue from the sinful corruption of the world. Now remember, we are in the context of the revelation, and as noted often on these Sundays, there is a repetition, a, a kind of a cycle that is going on over and over, the same instances, but from different angles. So going back to chapter 11, chapter 11, turn your Bibles to chapter 11 and uh, verse 15, chapter 11, verse 15, we read these words. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and your rewarding for servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So that is the trumpet proclamation that is now being worked out so that now this general pronouncement of the full realization of God's reign is now being talked about the rest of the way through uh, the book of Revelation. In a sense, it it is this proclaiming, uh, this proclaiming the end of the story. The reality of the Garden of Eden has now returned, he says here in chapter 11, verse 15, that God's kingdom is, uh, and the world's kingdom have come together once again. So from chapters 12 and forward, God is revealing to his church how this is going to happen. And part of the explanation of how this is going to happen are the bowls. And so we come to the seventh bowl and we read these words in chapter 16, the seventh bowl. Verse 17. The angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. The seventh bowl gives us a final camera angle on the completion of God's wrath in judgment on rebellious humans and the created order that they have defiled. And the finality of God's climactic judgment at history's end is affirmed by God himself who sits on the throne as he sees this bowl being being poured out of judgment and he says this, he says, it is done. And so beginning last week in chapters 17 and 18, continuing today, especially at the end of chapter 19 and on into chapter 20, there's a sense that things are coming to a close. That God is in the cleanup stages of human history. That that he's mopping up. Mopping up work of all that is filthy and vile and corrupt and Immoral. Oh, how I value my cell phone. And oh, how I loathe it. In one minute, I can text my MC family like I did yesterday and say, MC family, 
pray for me as I preach tomorrow? In one moment, I can solicit through them advocates to the Father's throne for the success of God's word in mine and your hearts today. In an instant, I have communicated. Oh, how I like that. Oh, how I loathe it. For I can pick it up, get on Facebook or Instagram to promote Morningstar Academy, and without much effort be seduced into 30 minutes of wasteful, mind-numbing dribble. It becomes a platform for the promotion of the prostitute of chapter 17, of Babylon of chapter 18, of all that is vile and filthy and corrupt and immoral. And you know what? I'm not talking about pornography, which is another deeper level of soul-deadening corruption. I'm talking about the magnification of foolishness and maliciousness and impurity and covetousness, of which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with an empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so last week, we looked at the description of a worldwide culture that is in opposition to God and his people. And John is given two pictures. First, the picture of a prostitute who's portrayed as seductive, seducing, Seducing the world towards sexual immorality so that we see there in chapter 17, uh, verse 2, these words. So with, them, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the, with the wine of those of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of earth have become drunk. To cause the world to embrace that which is unthinkable in the mind of God. She's also portrayed as seducing the world economically. She seduces, she seduces the world leaders and her peoples toward an idolatry that worships economic prosperity, cultural achievements, and technological and medical advances. The second picture is that of Babylon, chapter 17, verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. See, Babylon has been a prophetic favorite to picture a culture in rebellion against God. A culture subsumed with a love of self and a deep drive to be autonomous, to shake off the shackles of God. A city with its roots at Babel where they said in Genesis 11:4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its, with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. A united, depraved humanity is a dangerous entity. A destructive entity who enslaves literally, chapter 18, verse 13. And who destroys all that is true and good and beautiful. Because if you remember back there in part in rejoicing in chapter 11, it was over God who destroys the destroyers of the earth. So chapter 19, where we find ourselves this morning, is really a heavenly response to God's rescue from the sinful corruption of the world. Look at verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So that all that is corrupt, all that is vile, all that is immoral, all that is wrong with our world will be judged. His rescue, God's rescue from the sinful corruption of the world comes in the form of a judgment. And just note a few things here. Number one, his judgments are true and just. Unlike the 
judgments today, experience today, even at our best attempts at true judgments, we fail. We just can't know all things. And even when we do think we know all things, we're biased in some way. But on this day, the judgment will be absolutely accurate, right, and just. There will be no appeals court because there will not be a need for an appeals court. His judgment is true and just. Number two, his judgment is vengeance. See, the martyr's question was allowed by God above the throne as they are below the throne. And they asked this question in chapter 6, verse 10. They say, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will you judge? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, a great injustice that is occurring in humanity is when one of his saints is killed for remaining faithful to the one who is just and true. We live in a corrupt world of injustice, this kind of injustice. Two Congolese pastors, several other Christians were killed in attacks by an Islamist militant group in November. American Christian aid worker Jeff Woodkey was abducted two years ago by an Islamic extremist in Nigeria. He hasn't been heard from since. High caste Hindus have pressured a new church plant in Nepal to shut down. Members are now worshiping in secret. More than 100 members of Autumn Rain Covenant Church in Sichuan, uh, China. They also have a classical Christian school there as well. They were arrested in December. Pastor Yang Yi and his wife were threatened with a sentence of 5 to 15 years of imprisonment. In Iran, more than 100 Christians were arrested by Iranian intelligence officers charged with going against the Islamic regime in the name of Christ. His judgment is vengeance. And in all of our good redemptive stories that we enjoy and we watch, we read, we watch, there's this sense of good over evil. And intuitively, we know we ought to remember those who died before us. Remember Maze Runner trilogy? At the end there, there's this granite uh, uh, pillar. And what are they doing? They're, they're chiseling in the names of those who died before them. Uh, I'll be Newt. Teresa. Or how about Rue in the Hunger Games? And we can't miss the Lord of the Rings. Boromir. See, see, intuitively we know that we ought to remember those who have died in these great redemptive stories. And so this is what he's talking about here. It's a remembrance of those who have died on behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. And so the, the judgment of this corrupt world is to remember their names and to bring vengeance in this injustice. Number three, his judgment is thorough. Look at verse three. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In other words, as far and as long as God's standard stretches so far and as long as it will to take to, to, take to justly judge the offense. And in God's case, the standard is holiness. And it will take forever and ever. And see, this has been the theme of God's story for thousands of years. Uh, back to Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 10, for instance. It says there, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation shall lie waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. See, Edom is the pattern for the world system which will never rise again after God's judgment. And so God reveals to the church in the face of the persecution, in the face of the frustration, this reality. God will rescue his people from the corruption of this world in the form of a true and just and thorough judgment. And it is the joy 
of this reality that strengthens believers to overcome. Look again, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. Or verse 3, once more they cried out. It was a loud voice. No Midwestern reserve going on here. And it was a voice in unison. So I think, I think we need to be thinking in terms of where we don't seem to have any reserve, stadiums. And you've, you've heard those cheers that are done in unison. And it's thrilling. And here it's the same in these ruling agents. You see there in verse 4, these ruling agents in heaven nearest to the throne of God agreed with rejoicing. And they, verse 4, fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And then verse 5, the throne, and from the throne a voice came saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. You come from a gathering like that, you're ready to take on the world. So it's the joy of the reality of God's final rescue that gives strength to overcome the corruption today. And that is why this weekly gathering is so important. We, we get a taste here of this heavenly rejoicing. Last week, we sang the song, really it's a prayer. We, we rehearse in song why Christ is so great, and then we pray in song, make my heart believe. There'll be a day when we won't sing that song. Because Christ's worldly rivals won't be present to seduce us anymore. And so last week, I silently prayed, come now, Jesus. This moment is so sweet. Come now. So I don't have to go back out there. So I don't have to be seduced. Could you just come now? So I don't have to continue to pray. Make my heart believe. See, underlying that prayer is the need for a second rescue. God's rescue from sin within, verses 6 through 10. God's rescue from sin within. See, see there's a little phrase in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 4, where Peter says that God has given us everything we need so that we can escape the corruption. Here it is, escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, now let the, that phrase sink in for just a minute. The corruption of the world is caused by evil desires. Now consider how radically different this viewpoint is from the way we normally think. We all tend to want to blame our surroundings for what we think or do. We say, it's peer pressure. Or, if you had a boss like mine, you'd be angry too. It's that music she listens to. If you were married to her, you'd go looking as well. And although it is quite appropriate to understand and evaluate the influence of the surrounding culture, it is vitally important that we get the order right. Verse 6. 
See, what Peter is proposing is stunning. He does not say that we are corrupt because the culture around us is. In fact, the opposite is true. The culture is corrupt because we are. So that even in Christ, there is this gravitational pull from within. It's kind of that Romans 7 summed up in verse 18, which says, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, and then he clarifies, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. See, sin works within us like this. Number one, we tend to be our own spiritual con man. See, the hook of the con man is to offer something we crave, and so in our sin, we offer ourselves little spiritual vacations. A little dabbling in sin that turns out to be a stinking swampland. Number two, we, we sign a premature, a premature, did I say premature? A premature armistice agreement with our sin nature. See, faith in Christ gives great victories over sin and in relationships. And so sin just goes underground and starts a covert war. But what we do is we live in a peacetime mentality, stop our spiritual drills of prayer and the word of God. We go AWOL from MC, Fight Club, maybe the gathering. But don't mistake that just because there is peace between you and God because of the precious atoning work of the Prince of Peace on the cross, don't let that fool you. The war of hostility is still raging inside of us. Number three, we feed the beast and then are surprised when we are, when we are bitten. See, the Bible presents the devil as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And like zookeepers who often get bitten when they have been feeding the beast, so we too get ourselves in trouble when we feed the beast little morsels of our heart and our life. Number four, we have bandaged our wounds without healing the disease. We tend to be like the Pharisees. We clean the outside of the cup, but not get out the inside with the gospel. And so we make the appropriate external changes that we need to do, the processes, the habits, without ever pressing the gospel into our life to make a heart change. What we need is God to rescue us from sin from within. Well, how do I see that in verses 6 through 10? Well, note the escalation of verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of mighty waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Whatever decibels John has heard in verse 1, the intensity is now magnified over what is to come. What's to come? Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, look how that rain is pictured. It is pictured with the same intensity of, of a joy of a wedding and the same intensity of an intimacy of marriage. God rescues us from sin within through the powerful institution of marriage. Not our marriages. No, but of the greater marriage of Christ and the church, of which our marriages are simply to be small living parables. See, his reign is pictured with the same intensity of a joy of a wedding day. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Or verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, John is reaching back again to the prophet Isaiah who, who writes joyfully of this day in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Let me just read it for you. God speaking through Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, for the Lord has spoken. And the roar of the heavens that we see here is the roar of joy over the reality that now back to chapter 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as his bride, we, the corporate body of Christ, will reign with him. Wow. So he's been in pursuit of his bride from the very beginning. A great divorce occurred in the garden. See, in the garden, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world were together. They were the same thing. And then we, we separated. We sinned. We divorced God. And God was on a pursuit. He was on a pursuit for his bride. Running after her. Wooing her. Wooing you. wanting to enter back into a covenant with you, that covenant of marriage. But no, how is that going to happen? I'm, I can't be intimate with him. I'm a prostitute. I commit adultery. Well, see, his reign is also pictured with the same intensity of intimacy as expected in a marriage. So here's the good news. End of verse 7. His bride has made herself ready. Well, the good news, we will be ready. If you're in Christ individually, you'll be ready. Corporately, we will be ready. Here's the better news. Verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. See, this is a remarkable picture of God's gracious provision of the garment of righteousness appropriate for the marriage to the Lamb, and yet the believer's responsibility to be clothed in faithful works that is becoming of those betrothed in Jesus Christ. So let me start here with the prophet Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. It says there, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. <laughs> Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. Christ was everything we could never be. God provides the gracious garment of righteousness earned by Christ. See, remember here in our passage, it says, his bride has made herself ready and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So God graciously gives the bride now the ability to work righteous deeds as the betrothed, as the engaged of God. So the church in, 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 our, in our book, Sardis, he writes, yet you still have a few names and names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Or he calls the Lady Oceans to clothe themselves with white garments and cover the shame of their nakedness. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, rejoices in the gift of faith in Jesus Christ that results in good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it is Christ who loves his bride, the church, and washes her with the word, a word that brings conviction and repentance and faith and good works and Ephesians 5, 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He is bent on the beauty of the bride. 
He is bent on you being prepared. Huh. Yeah. He rescues us from our sin within to make us ready for the intimacy of marriage. So good is this news to John that mistakenly and sinfully he worships the angel who confirms it. Verse 10. What joy! I will be ready because he grants me to be ready and so I make myself ready. Fixed upon God's final rescue, rescues provides the joy sufficient to overcome the sin within. Now, what is the character of this groom? What's he like? So bent on his bride's beauty. Verses 11 through 16 should give you a good picture. He's a warrior, a warrior king. Third rescue, God's rescue from fear. God's rescue from fear. See, in every one of the seven churches, there was a fear. For the church at Ephesus, it was a fear to love Christ too much and be disappointed. For the church at Smyrna, it was a fear of suffering. For the church at Pergamum, it was a fear of offending with the truth. For the, thir- for the church at Thyatira, it was a fear of economic and material loss. For the church at Sardis, it was a fear of a loss of reputation. For the church at Philadelphia, it was the fear of a trial. For the church at Laodicea, it was the fear of loss of comfort. God's rescue from these fears is to reveal the true character of the groom. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the one in whom we are engaged. And he is preparing another supper. I saw an angel standing in the sun, verse 17, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Babylon has been destroyed and now two of the unholy trinity, the beast and the prophets of the beast will be destroyed, verses 19 and 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its images. The the image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And what speaks loudly is what is not recorded and is found in the silence of scripture, found in that white space between verses 19 and 20. The battle. 
the battle itself, it is such a foregone conclusion that it isn't even worth mentioning. Christ and his army wins. Life is war. In your battle with sin, and in your fight of faith, and in your struggle for joy in Christ, the warrior king goes in battle with you. Whatever you fear, the fear to love Christ too much and be disappointed, the fear of suffering for Christ, the fear of offending others with the truth, the fear of economic material loss in following him, the fear of a loss of reputation in holding on to him, the fear of trial, the fear of loss of comfort. Look who you gain. Look who's with you. Fixed upon God's rescues provides joy. Joy sufficient to be overcomers. Father, help us. You, you command every one of your churches and thus you command us that we are to be overcomers. We are to be conquerors. So Father, we pray that you would give us joy. This is a fight for joy. That our joy in the rescue over the corruption that is all around us in our world the joy of you rescuing us from that, the joy of knowing that you are rescuing us from sin within, that you've already rescued us at the cross and now continuing to rescue us from its power over our lives, that we'd have the joy that sees the conquering king in such a way that gives us victory over the fears of our hearts. Father, we want to be overcomers. Give us joy. Give us joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Give us joy in what you have done for us. Give us joy for what you will do that we might apply it today. Father, that we might overcome however you're convicting each one of us here this morning. Give us joy so that we can overcome. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.